I would ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. This morning we are looking at verses 12 through 20. First Corinthians 15 verses 12 through 20. This is the word of God. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. About a decade ago, there was a documentary that was put on television that caused a bit of an uproar. It was called The Lost Tomb of Jesus. I don't know if any of you that have been around a while remember that. The show claimed that archaeologists had found in Jerusalem a tomb that contained several ossuaries. Ossuaries were in the ancient world were boxes, basically, that contained the bones kind of like coffins or, or you know, but, but smaller usually, that contained the bones of those who had died. And supposedly one of the boxes had inscribed on it, Jesus, son of Joseph. And supposedly several of the other boxes had names from Jesus' family. Well, the reason that some of you that haven't been around that long may not have remembered this is it was very quickly discredited and forgotten. But it caused many Christians, I think, at the time to ask themselves the question, what if it could have been proven that Jesus never was raised from the dead? What if that could somehow, and it's hard to imagine how, but if somehow they could prove that the body of Christ never left the tomb, that he died and he stayed dead, what difference would that make? What difference would that make to the world? that I live in? What difference would it make to me personally if Jesus was never raised from the dead? We began to study chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians last week, and we saw that Paul is addressing here a false teaching that had cropped up in the church in Corinth. He's dealt with a lot of different problems in the church at Corinth up to chapter 15, but in a sense, here's the most important problem he had to address. It was a teaching that basically undermined the gospel. The most dangerous kind of teaching is the kind of teaching that undermines the gospel. Remember when we looked at the first 11 chapters, first 11 verses of chapter 15 last week, we saw that Paul there began this section by summarizing the gospel. And it was fascinating how he did that. 
how do you summarize the gospel very briefly? And he brought it, basically brought it down to two historical facts. Jesus died and was buried, and he was raised on the third day. And we said last week, there you have the core of the Apostles' Creed. He died and was buried and was raised on the third day. The whole of the gospel rests on those two historical facts. So what was being taught in Corinth then that undermined the message of the gospel? Well, Paul quotes it in verse 12. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, it would probably be helpful at this point to summarize the views of death and afterlife and body and soul that were current in the context in which Paul is addressing there in Corinth. First of all, you had the Jewish perspective. You had Jewish Christians in the church in Corinth. And of course, the gospels are based in the Old Testament. And so you had the Jewish perspective of resurrection and the traditional Orthodox, not in the modern sense of Orthodox, but Orthodox in the first century, the traditional view of the Jewish people was that we, according to what the Old Testament teaches, we are created both body and soul. We are not just body, we are not just soul, we are both body and soul. Both are important to who we are. And that when we die, the body goes into the grave, but the hope was that on Judgment Day, on the day at the end of all history, which was coming, that the, those who were considered righteous would receive their body in a glorified form, a resurrected body, to go with a perfected soul. Sounds familiar because it's the Old Testament view of human nature and the afterlife. That's what the Jews believed. You heard it in the mouth of Martha. Remember when Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus? Lazarus had just died and Jesus came to the tomb and he said to Martha, Lazarus' sister, he said to her, your brother will rise again. Remember what she said? She said, I know. I'm a good Orthodox first century Jew, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And so she was just affirming her faith that one day, body and soul, God's people would be perfected. Of course, we also know that there was a sect or a segment of the Jewish people that were what we would call in our day the theological liberals of that day, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were in control, kind of always thought it was kind of incongruous that they were the ones who controlled the priesthood and the temple, but yet they were the ones that were theologically liberal and they did not believe in a bodily resurrection. But again, they were the liberals. They were the ones who veered from what the Old Testament taught. Then also in this first century context, you have the Greek philosophy, which had developed over many centuries. In the Greek world, they believed that the body was evil, that the whole material world was evil. And that salvation for the Greek philosopher was to be released from the body, to be released from this material existence. That it's the soul, it's the spirit of man that is pure and, and to be released from your body is to be released from prison. To be freed into the perfect realm of ideas. And so salvation to the, in Greek philosophy looked like enlightenment, usually intellectual enlightenment. Well, some Greeks in that culture responded to the Greek philosophy by treating the body very harshly. 
They, would, uh, they were called Stoics. They would deny the desires and pleasures of the body and try to focus only on this pure spiritual realm. But then you had other parts of Greek culture that responded to this Greek philosophy by saying, well, it doesn't matter what I do in my body because the body's evil, it's bound to be destroyed. So I'm just gonna pursue pleasure to my, to, to, to my pleasure. I'm just gonna pursue pleasure, that's what I'm gonna be about. So they were called the Epicureans. But it was based in this wrong philosophy of the relationship between the soul and the body. So it helps to know that context because then you say, what was being taught in Corinth? They had corrupted the gospel. We saw back in chapter 2 that they had allowed the wisdom of the world to seep into the church. Well, here's one example of it. They had allowed this either aberrant Jewish uh, theology that denied the bodily resurrection of, of the righteous, or they had bought into the Greek philosophy, which taught that the body was a prison to be escaped from. And so they were saying there is no resurrection for believers. They denied the bodily resurrection of believers, that that wasn't part of our future hope. In this time period, there was the beginnings of what would later be called the Gnostic heresy in the church. Gnosticism was part of Greek philosophy that tied into that philosophy. But in the Christian version, there wasn't room for any bodily resurrection. They believed that Jesus' resurrection was a spiritual resurrection, had nothing to do with his body, and they believed the same for, for those who believed in Christ, and they were heretics. It's interesting to me that going back to that documentary a decade ago, when they talked about this supposed claim to find the bones of Jesus, they went to liberal theologians. They never go to evangelical theologians, I don't know why. They, they went to liberal theologians and said, well, what impact would this have on Christianity if they, if they really did find the bones of Jesus? And the liberal theologians say, well, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter at all. Because really, resurrection's a metaphor. And you know, so Jesus' resurrection wasn't, they didn't mean literally he was raised from the dead. It was just a metaphor for enlightenment or whatever. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like the Greeks in the first century? I mean, heresies don't ever, they're never new. They're always just regurgitated from some earlier era in history. Well, in verse 29, there's actually a hint, maybe, maybe a hint to what the Corinthians were teaching, what these false teachers in Corinth were teaching, where Paul just alludes to a fact, and we'll look at this in a couple weeks, he alludes to the fact that some of them were being baptized for the dead. And we just have to speculate, why would somebody be baptized for the dead? Well, we'll talk about that later, but as it pertains to this issue, they must have believed that there was some life after death that there was some spiritual existence after death. What they were denying, and again, this just brings us back to say what it appears pretty clearly to us is they were denying that believers did not have the hope of a bodily resurrection in the future. It may have been similar to what two false teachers in Ephesus were spouting. Remember in Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, Paul addresses two false teachers named Hymenaeus and Philetus. And he describes their teaching in this way. He says, they have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. And this would fit into this idea that maybe the, the teaching that was true in Ephesus, maybe in Corinth as well, is that 
the resurrection of believers is a spiritual resurrection. They, and these two particularly may have been saying that this resurrection happened when they were convert, when Christians are converted or when they're baptized. That was possibly what was being taught. We don't know for sure. But the only thing we need to be sure of, and it is certainly clear in this passage, is that they were denying the bodily resurrection of believers. They weren't directly necessarily denying the bodily resurrection of Christ. But Paul makes it clear that you can't have one without the other. He says in verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And there's his launching point. What if, as Owen said earlier, what if Christ has not been raised from the dead? The whole rest of this section is a what if scenario, a hypothetical situation. Paul says, let me just for the sake of argument concede that to you and say that, that there is no resurrection. That means that Christ is not raised from the dead. Let's think about the implications of that for just a moment. What would the world look like if Christ is not risen from the dead? Some of my favorite books and movies and stories in general are time travel stories. Must be a lot of people who like time travel stories because there's a ton of them out there. But it's just fascinating to think what, you know, it's fascinating to think about going to a different an era and see what it was like to live in that era. But I think part of it is just seeing what if something changes? So many of these stories have this. If you change something in the past, what effect does that have on the future? One of my current favorites in the time travel category is a new show called Timeless. Have you seen that? Timeless is about a team of time travelers who are chasing a shady character who also has a time machine. They're chasing him through history. He's going back into the past to try to change very significant events in, in the past so that he can change the present. And they're trying to stop him. One thing I like about the show is it brings out this, this idea of what if on both the big picture scale as well as on the personal scale. Because they address questions kind of like, what if JFK was never assassinated? What impact would that have on the present? What if 9-11 never happened? What impact would that have on the present? That's big picture. But it also deals with the personal. Because when they go back and things are changed in the past, what you see in the show is that the lives of the time travelers in the present get changed as well. And so, for instance, one of the main characters, when, they, when something changes in the past, she comes back to the present and her sister's gone, never existed. And so these are the kind of things that, if you like philosophy at all, just kind of fascinating. What if? Well, that's what Paul does here, both on the grand big picture scale as well as on the personal scale. He's saying, what if the resurrection of Jesus Christ never happened? What would that mean in the big picture? And what would that mean to you personally. His first point, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then our preaching, our evangelizing, our sharing of the message, our teaching is useless. As he puts it in verse 14, if Christ is not risen, our preaching is in vain. The word in vain there in the original Greek means empty. Useless, empty, a resurrectionless gospel is just a bunch of empty promises. It'd be like getting a 
big box, beautifully wrapped in wrapping paper with a big bow on it. And you're thinking, wow, this is not just a present. This is a mega present. This is great. Look how big this box is. And you tear off the wrapping paper, you tear off the bow, and you open up, and there's nothing in there. That's what Paul's saying. That's what the gospel would be if there is no resurrection. The things that we hope for because of the message, perfection, deliverance from sin, an eternal inheritance, paradise, all these things that are promised would be empty promises. They wouldn't be there at the end. But Paul takes it a step further. He says, not only would we be making empty promises to you, in verse 15, he says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. This, is, this message, as we saw last week, came from the apostles who said they were appointed to take this message to the world by the risen Christ. And so not only would they, they, what they would be sharing, this whole message that the church is built upon, would not just be some well-meaning mistake, it would be a lie. The apostles and everyone who has passed on the message ever since then would be lying about God. And that's something you better not take lightly. In the Old Testament, false prophets were stoned to death. Jesus said, better that a millstone be hung around their neck and be cast into the sea than that they lead someone astray. Remember what the apostle Paul said. Paul said, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, and we saw last week what the gospel was that was delivered to him, that he delivered to others, that gospel, as he summarized it in verses 3 and 4, Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day. He says, if anyone, even an angel from heaven, should come to you and preach a gospel that is contrary to that gospel, let him be accursed. That doesn't mean have a miserable life. That means be under God's curse forever. And Peter takes it another step in 2 Peter chapter 2. This is what he says about false teachers and false prophets. He says, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. And that's the consistent teaching of scripture. That those who lie about God those who know the truth but yet tell something other than the truth and lie about God, those are the ones who inhabit the deepest pits in hell. False prophets, false teachers. And Paul says, that's who I am if Christ is not raised from the dead. That's the stakes that he's placing on this issue. So without the bodily resurrection of Christ, when we witness to others, when we teach Sunday school, when we lead a Bible study, when we share the gospel across the fence to our neighbor, we are offering empty promises. We are offering to them lies about the true God. That's the first implication, if Christ is not risen. The second implication, Paul says, if Christ is not risen, then our faith is useless. Look at verse 14. He says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is in vain. Again, it's the same word. It's empty. In verse 17, he says, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If the apostles were false prophets and the gospel message is false and empty and a lie, the eternal implications for those who believe this lie, who believe this message, are catastrophic, Paul says. 
You see, contrary to what our culture says and what even some in the church say, faith is not some kind of metaphysical power that exudes from us. Faith is only as good as the object of that faith. Faith in something useless is useless. Faith in a dead savior cannot save. We are not saved by faith. It may sound heretical for a pastor to say that. We are not saved by faith. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is only as good as its object. If Jesus is still dead, then faith can do nothing for you. Faith in him does nothing for you. If Jesus Christ is still dead, he's no different than Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther or John Calvin because they're all dead if Jesus is dead and none of them can do anything for you today and certainly nothing for you in the future. You see, the resurrection, this is so important. This is the essence of the, of the meaning of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel, is that the resurrection was God's vindication of the sinlessness of Christ and his deity. He was the son of God. He was proclaimed to be the son of God, Paul says in Romans 1, by his resurrection. The resurrection vindicated the sinlessness and the deity of Christ and the resurrection was the acceptance by God the Father of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, of Christ dying on the sins in our place. We know that God accepted his blood sacrifice on the cross because God raised him from the dead. And therefore we know our sins are forgiven. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then he wasn't sinless. His death wasn't a substitutionary atonement for our sins. And we are still guilty of our sins. And we are still under God's wrath. And we are destined for an eternity of paying for our sins. But did you notice that Paul, if you skip down near the end of the passage, he basically saying, if our faith is in a dead Messiah, he goes on to, to give an implication of that, and it's an emotional gut punch, a purposeful, emotional gut punch. He says in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You want to get somebody upset? You want to get them angry? Tell them that you think that their dead beloved grandmother isn't in heaven. That is one of the most cherished beliefs that we have, is that those that we love that have died have gone to heaven. But Paul is saying, hear what he's saying, feel the weight of it. If Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then all of your loved ones, even those who have put their faith in Christ, are still under their sins for all eternity and under God's wrath. That's the import of what he's saying. If Christ is not risen, then faith in Christ is empty and useless. Brings me to his third point. If Christ is not risen, not only is our message empty and useless, not only is our faith empty and useless, but our lives themselves are useless. They're empty. They have no purpose, no meaning. In verse 19, he says, For if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
if Jesus is not risen from the dead and alive and seated on the throne in heaven, then everything that our critics say about us is true, our worst critics, that there is really no sin and we just have these overactive guilty consciences. And we've created this Messiah figure in our minds to help us deal with our fears, help us deal with the reality of suffering. We've come up with this mythical figure to help us cope. If Christ is not risen from the dead, then we are fools who live in a dream world and we should be pitied as people who cannot deal with reality. I came across this week a new religion, relatively new religion. Did you know that there's a religion called Jediism? It is. I found their website, and I was glad to see on the website that they do say they understand that Star Wars is just a movie and, and, and literature, but the Jedi religion is true. And they've committed themselves to the principles of Jedi religion. Matter of fact, they have a statement of faith on their website. And our tendency is just shake our heads at that and say, how foolish, how foolish. But I tell you, if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, that religion makes a lot more sense than Christianity. What you believe and live by is more foolish than Jediism if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead. Do you remember about a year and a half, two years ago, we did a study through the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember that book? That's, you know, this is Paul in about eight or nine verses doing a what-if scenario. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is a what-if scenario. He starts the book by saying, what if the only reality that exists is what's under the sun? In other words, there's no God, no spiritual realm, nothing but the material world. What if, and he just, the whole book, it's a wonderful exploration of that what-if scenario. If what's true is only what's under the sun. Do you remember his conclusion? He starts with his conclusion, he keeps repeating his conclusion, and he ends with his conclusion. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does the word vanity mean? Empty. Nothing. We used the analogy to soap bubbles at the time, I remember. Beautiful for the moment, but gone in an instant, and leaves nothing. Vanity of vanities. It's striving after the wind, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. That's what life's about. No meaning, no purpose, no value. John Piper tells a story in the book Desiring God about a Roman Catholic monk who was entering into a monastery and was entering into a vow of solitude and silence. And as he was about to go in and take this vow upon himself, he was interviewed by a media person. And the, the interviewer said to him, what if you get to the end of your life and find out that the atheists were right? And the answer of the monk was this, holiness, silence, and sacrifice are beautiful in themselves, even without the promise of an eternal reward. I still will have used my life well. That sounds noble, that sounds religious, that sounds impressive, but it's hogwash. Paul would strongly disagree. Why sacrifice? Why live in austerity if this life is the only good that you're ever going to get? 
The material world and your physical pleasures is the only good you're ever going to get. Paul would not have been a Stoic if Christ is not risen from the dead. Paul would have been an Epicurean. How do I know that? Because you just skip down to verse 32. He says there in verse 32, go halfway into the verse, he says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know people live like that, don't you? It's because they don't have the hope of the gospel. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Squeeze every drop of marrow out of your earthly life. Pursue pleasure and earthly rewards at all costs. Live for the moment because you have no future. Minimize pain and maximize pleasure. That's the sensible way to live if Christ is not raised from the dead. Let me hit you with this question. If Christ is not risen from the dead, if you find it out through some discovery, if you find it out at the end of your life, whatever, if you find out that Christ was not literally bodily raised from the dead, what difference would it make in your life? Would it make a difference? Would your life look different if Christ is not raised from the dead? If not, there's a problem. Because we don't live for this life. We don't eat and drink and be merry and seek this earth's rewards because there is nothing beyond this. That's not how we live. We live for a future kingdom. We live for a coming king. We live for an inheritance that isn't found in this life. What difference would it make to your life if you found out tomorrow that Jesus Christ was not really raised from the dead? Well, that brings us to verse 20, the last verse we've read today. The verse we'll pick up with next week, next time I preach, which isn't next week. This is the most comforting, reassuring verse in all of Scripture. Having just spent 25 minutes or more contemplating a world where Christ is not risen from the dead, Paul gives the real good news. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He says, don't worry about all that. That was the hypothetical. That was the myth. Here's the reality. Jesus Christ walked out of that tomb alive forever. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered the evil one. And our whole reality changed. He calls him the first fruits. First fruits is an Old Testament concept. In the Old Testament harvest, you would take the first, first sheaf of the grain from the grain harvest, the first, very first sheaf you cut down, you would take it to the temple and offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. It was an act of trust, saying, Lord, I trust you that having given us this first sheaf of grain, you're going to give us the whole harvest. You are faithful to your promises. That was the first fruits concept. You see what Paul is saying about Christ's resurrection. He was bodily raised from the dead. He lives body and soul forever. He is, his resurrection is the guarantee of your resurrection. It will happen. Bank on it. Live by it. Proclaim it to the world. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, then our message our faith and our lives would be empty and useless. 
sin, death, and Satan would remain undefeated. But, Paul says, since he is risen from the dead, our preaching is the only good news in this fallen world. Our faith in him will save us completely because he is faithful and his work has been completed at the cross. Our sins have been put afar as way as east is from west. All who have died in faith, all those loved ones who had faith in Christ, they are with Christ right now as we speak and we will see them again and spend eternity with them praising Christ and living in fellowship with him and with them. And we will inherit everything that Christ has promised to us in the new heavens and the new earth. We know this because he is raised from the dead. Let me close with two answers from questions in the Heidelberg Catechism, questions 57 and 58. The question is, what comfort does the resurrection of the body offer to you? The answers, not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ, but also this my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall, after this life, possess perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is our hope. We have staked our lives, we have staked our future on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have appointed your apostles to be the eyewitnesses of his resurrection and they have taken this message to the rest of the church through every generation. We have received it, we believe it, we live by trust in this risen savior. And Lord, we have experienced his power in our lives. I pray for anyone here this morning who has not experienced the resurrection power of Christ. I pray, Lord, that as they consider this message of the true gospel, that you would give them the gift of faith and repentance, that they would believe and receive this eternal life that is offered only through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.